This is History 2311, Week 7b, Superpower. If you ever go down Trinidad, they make you feel so very glad. Calypso sing and make up rhyme, guarantee you one real good fine time. Drinking rum and Coca-Cola, go down Point Kumana, both mother and daughter, working for the Yaki Just a little bit about this catchy ditty. It's a song called Rum and Coca-Cola, which was a big hit for the Andrews sisters in 1945. It's a Calypso song. Calypso is a kind of Afro-Caribbean music that was very popular in the 1940s. Now, the Andrews sisters were not Afro-Caribbean. They were a very white-bred girl group from Minnesota. And I don't think they thought too hard about the lyrics of this song, which was originally recorded by a Trinidadian Calypso musician who called himself Lord Invader. And the original lyrics of the song are a pretty direct critique of kind of U.S. imperialism, or at least the American military presence in the Caribbean. The Andrews sisters cleaned up the lyrics, but left the line about how both mother and daughter are working for the Yankee dollar, which most people took to be a reference to prostitution. I think it's fair to say the song was just risque enough. The lyrics were just edgy enough to make the song a big hit in 1945. But all that makes it ideal for our purposes today because it is a song about the American military presence around the world. It was recorded in 1945, which is our subject today. It is a song about the Yankee dollar, and it's about Coca-Cola, which, as you'll see, comes up. So in my lecture today, I'm going to once again zoom in to one particular year. We've done this before with the lectures on 1876 and 1898. And uh, we'll do it again. There's more I would do if there was time. I often think, oh, I could teach a whole course on this year, on 1989 or 1912 or 1929, or indeed 1945. 1945 was the end of the Second World War, of course, but it was also the height of America's power and influence and prestige in the world. It's the moment at which the United States really embraced the mantle of world leadership and Americans imagined a new world order built in America's image. American power and American dominance was so obvious and so overwhelming in 1945, they needed to coin a new word for what the United States was. Not simply a great power or a world power, they called it the first superpower. So that moment, the arrival of the United States as the preeminent superpower is our topic for today. I haven't talked as much as I probably could have or would like to have in the class so far about the media. It is definitely worth remembering that, you know, other people besides presidents are important and powerful in American life and media figures certainly play a big role. This is Henry Luce. Henry Luce was an American magazine publisher magnate. He uh, launched a number of hugely influential magazines, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, Fortune, Sports Illustrated, and he played an active editorial role in shaping those magazines and what they published, which made him very influential. In fact, he was called the most influential private citizen in America. Now, Luce was a staunch Republican 
kind of an enemy of Franklin Roosevelt, but he was also an internationalist. He was born in China. His parents were missionaries there. He had a kind of cosmopolitan worldview. So even though he was a Republican, he often fought against the more isolationist wing of the Republican Party. And in that fight, he and Roosevelt were sometimes allies. Even before the attack on Pearl Harbor, before December 1941, Luce was calling on Americans to get involved in the war, to get more involved in the world. And he used his powerful platform, his magazines, to make the case for American involvement. Many Americans would learn about Hitler's atrocities, about the dangers of Nazi Germany through Henry Luce's magazines. Luce's magazines often published these kind of famous maps by a cartographer named Richard Harrison. I really like these maps. Harrison pioneered this kind of creative cartographic perspective where we're not looking at a flat map, but instead a kind of representation of a 3D globe. I always talk about different kinds of historical documents and what they tell us in this class. And you know, maps are documents too, and they have messages. They aren't just neutral representations of reality. What are the messages that these maps are trying to tell us? One of the big messages of Harrison's maps and this kind of perspective is that the world is small. The United States is not isolated from the world conflict. What you're looking at is these maps invite the readers of Fortune magazine in 1940 to imagine the United States being invaded from Tokyo or Berlin. Here's Harrison's map of the Second World War published in 1941 with the Axis powers in black and the anti-Axis powers in red. And Harrison includes the United States in red, even though this map is from before the United States entered the war. It's also from before the Nazi invasion of Germany. So the Soviet Union, the Nazi Soviet pact is still in effect and the Soviet Union is colored in as an Axis power, as an enemy of the allies. And this polar projection in which we're looking down at the whole globe from the North Pole is meant to persuade people, meant to persuade Americans that they are already kind of in the war, that it isn't something distant far away across the ocean, uh, that they are already right smack dab in the middle of it, whether they like it or not. As the caption to this Harrison map says, the United States geographical isolation is more seeming than real. And this was a message that Henry Luce certainly endorsed and that he reiterated in lots of ways in his publications. In February of 1941, Luce laid out a vision for the future in a famous essay called The American Century. He said the 20th century is the American century, and he called on Americans as, quote, the most powerful and vital nation in the world to be champions of freedom. We've heard this language before in the course. Uh, this is the language of Woodrow Wilson, the language of the United States as the world's indispensable nation. Lou said, the United States cannot stay out of this war, but it's not enough for it just to enter the war. It needs to offer a new vision for the world. He said, the United States must spread free enterprise. It must spread its technical know-how. It must be a good Samaritan. He said, quote, it is the manifest duty of this country to feed all the people of the world who are hungry and destitute. In saying these things, Luce was echoing Franklin Roosevelt's four freedoms. In Roosevelt's fourth inaugural address in January 1941, he said, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of religion or worship, 
freedom from want, that is freedom from starvation or poverty, everywhere in the world. Freedom from fear, fear of war, anywhere in the world. And even though the United States had not yet entered the Second World War, Roosevelt was essentially laying out the country's war aims, the four freedoms for which America would fight. The great American artist Norman Rockwell illustrated Roosevelt's four freedoms in a series of famous paintings. Here's freedom from worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. If we were in class together, I would ask you, what strikes you about these war aims? And what strikes you about Rockwell's interpretation of them as images? Norman Rockwell was the great artist of kind of small town Americana. And what he does in these paintings is he makes the four freedoms seem familiar, all American, kind of homely. Freedom of speech is just a working class guy at a town meeting. Freedom from want is a Thanksgiving dinner. Freedom from fear is tucking the kids in at bedtime. But what Rockwell's paintings kind of belie is the massive ambition of these war aims. What Roosevelt was calling for here was a global mission for the United States. He says he's committed to freedom from poverty everywhere in the world. He's committing to freedom from war everywhere in the world. And with Luce, both Republicans and Democrats are embracing this global mission, this universal mission that is really extremely ambitious. While Roosevelt and his government promoted the four freedoms, American business would kind of slip a fifth freedom into the list, free enterprise. And when America did go to war in December 1941, you know, Americans were fighting for that too. An ad during the war for royal typewriters called What This War Is All About said that the freedom Americans were fighting for was the freedom to walk into any store in the land and buy anything you want. That is a particularly American definition of freedom. Back in 1898, Teddy Roosevelt and other imperialists dreamed of an American empire. But in a way, Luce's American century was even more ambitious than empire because an empire at least has borders. What Luce and Roosevelt and Americans were beginning to imagine was an American planet. Not that the United States would take over the world, but that the whole world would become like the United States. Well, the American century that Luce called for in 1941 seemed to have arrived in 1945 with the ending of the war. American power and prestige and influence were never greater than at the war's end in 1945. The United States had the gratitude of the entire globe, the prestige of having led the Allies to victory. And as we saw last time, the United States, kind of alone among the great powers, had escaped the war largely unscathed. I talked last time about the power of the American economy, of American industry. General Zhukov's toast, we did not know there were so many trucks in the world. This chart or graph isn't very attractive, but what it's showing is kind of mind-blowing. It's dividing the industrial output of the entire world into two categories, the USA and other. And what it shows is that for a few years after 1945, the United States accounted for one half of the world's industrial output. Half of all the industrial production on the planet was one country, the United States. 
the U.S. also had the atomic bomb, and it believed in 1945, quite wrongly as it turned out, but it believed that it would have a monopoly on the bomb for years, if not decades. And finally, the United States had the lessons of 1919, the lessons of Woodrow Wilson and Versailles and the League of Nations, and the way that a world which seemed determined to end all wars had slid back into global conflict in just 20 years. And Americans were determined not to make the same mistakes. So American leaders in 1945 moved confidently and assertively to create a new international regime to rebuild the world in the American image. At the center of American plans and President Roosevelt's plans for a prosperous and peaceful post-war world was the United Nations. Even as the war was going on, Roosevelt was already negotiating with leaders like Churchill and Stalin about the post-war world, selling them on the idea of the United Nations. And as you start working on the second uh, longer written assignment for this class and get into the primary source packages, if you decide to do the World War II Tehran Yalta topic, you can see those discussions happening at the Tehran and Yalta conferences. My slide here says that Churchill and Stalin both wanted a kind of regional approach to security, dividing the world up into spheres of influence over a Wilsonian League of Nations. That's a little bit misleading. Churchill actually did want a reinvigorated League of Nations, but he also definitely wanted to preserve the old British Empire. Stalin wanted to divide the world up into spheres of influence with each great power kind of supreme in its own zone. But the idea that Roosevelt pitched to them was a world protected by or overseen by four policemen, what he called four policemen. And these would be the United States, the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, and China. The inclusion of China marked a change from 1919. Uh, Roosevelt saw China as a natural counterweight to Japanese power in Asia, and also as a counterweight to Soviet power there. He thought, ironically, as it turned out, that China would tend to side with the United States against the Soviets so that it would be useful to include them in his big four, his four policemen. And the picture here is of a different big three, Roosevelt and Churchill with the Chinese president, the nationalist Chinese leader, Chiang Kai-shek in 1943. At the same time that he was having these discussions with Churchill and Stalin, Roosevelt was also doing what Wilson failed to do in the First World War, which was selling the American public and the US Congress on the idea of the United Nations. And internationalist Republicans like Henry Luce were very useful allies to the president in this. Luce agreed that, the, that it was the failure of the United States to join the League of Nations in 1920 that led to its weakness and they figured to its inability to stem the rising tides of war in the 1930s. So they were determined that whatever followed the Second World War would be more stable, more effective than the League of Nations. They wanted a League of Nations with teeth. Now Franklin Roosevelt died in April 1945, just weeks before the end of the war in Europe, and just weeks before the conference in San Francisco that created the United Nations. But the organization that was born at that conference very much followed the framework that Roosevelt had devised. The United Nations, like the US Congress, has a bicameral structure. It has two main bodies, the General Assembly, where every country gets one vote, 
and then also a Security Council, which consists of the five largest powers, uh, the US, Soviet Union, now Russia, Britain, France, and China, plus a rotating group of other states. And the Security Council has a veto over all matters of war and peace. And in that structure, the, the two body structure, you can sort of see the idealistic Wilsonian League of Nations married to a much more power-minded, realpolitik-minded, four policemen or five policemen model. Even Roosevelt's death helped to sell the United Nations. His widow, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, spoke passionately to Congress, presenting the United Nations as Roosevelt's last great legacy. And spurred by her remarks, Congress voted overwhelmingly in support of membership, something which of course didn't happen in 1919. A big difference from the fiasco of uh, Wilson and the Treaty of Versailles. Here we see Eleanor Roosevelt and the new president, Harry Truman, holding up the new United Nations flag. Notice that the UN logo is a Richard Harrison style polar projection, a way of looking at the world that emphasizes the interconnection of the United States, Europe, and Asia. And Truman, the new president, appointed Eleanor to the American delegation to the United Nations, and she was unanimously elected chair of the UN's Commission on Human Rights. Besides the United Nations, the Roosevelt administration and then the Truman administration were doing other things to fashion a new post-war international order. And this concept of human rights was actually central to many of them. They oversaw the Nuremberg trials of former Nazi leaders in November 1945, and then the Tokyo trials of Japanese leaders in May 1946. This is an image from the Nuremberg trials. I think that is Hermann Goering over on the, the far left side of the prisoner's box. And the trials were themselves significant as an expression of a new post-war international order. The Soviets just wanted show trials. They wanted quick summary judgments and mass executions of the Nazi leadership. There's an exchange about that in the Tehran Yalta documents you'll be reading for the second assignment. But the U.S. government insisted on genuine trials, on these being real trials. Now, I think they still definitely wanted the Nazis to be convicted, but nevertheless, they wanted a modicum of due process, real defense lawyers, a real back and forth. And these trials established a concept, a legal concept of crimes against humanity, which was a new legal concept at the time. It implied that states themselves, that governments themselves were subject to some higher authority, that there was some kind of legal system higher than that of the states themselves. Because of course the Nazi defense was, I was just following orders. We were just, nothing we did was illegal under our own laws. But the Nuremberg judgment was, that's not good enough. That there is in fact some higher system of legality or, or morality. And then what they didn't say out loud was that that higher system was to some extent modeled on the legal system of the United States. The Nuremberg and Tokyo trials were just one part of a kind of a bigger drive to give human rights greater prominence in international law and discourse. And this, this core idea that there is such a thing as human rights, that everyone has certain natural rights just by virtue of being human, and that those rights trump national sovereignty. It's not a new idea. It comes uh, out of the 1700s, out of the Enlightenment, but it was not universally shared. In fact, it was controversial. The English philosopher Jeremy Bentham called natural rights 
nonsense on stilts. But the idea of universal human rights was fundamental to the foundation of the United States. What are the first words of the Declaration of Independence? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed with their creator with certain inalienable rights. And Roosevelt's Four Freedoms and Luce's American Century were full of this language of human rights. These ideas also got a boost or seemed even more significant and more important as the grim details of the Holocaust emerged and became widely known. And so the preamble of the United Nations Charter quoted here on this slide, contained that same language to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights in the dignity and worth of the human person. And in 1948, the UN would adopt a universal declaration of human rights. Eleanor Roosevelt played a pivotal role in constructing this document, which was the first global expression of rights to which all human beings are inherently entitled. Along with the new international political order, American policymakers also gave a lot of thought to a new economic order. I mean, they remembered the experience of the 1930s, the Great Depression, and felt that all their hopes for a new era of international cooperation would prove empty without international prosperity. Of course, being Americans, they imagined prosperity in American terms, a market-oriented system of global trade and finance. In 1944, the United States hosted a conference in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. Uh, and at this conference, they kind of laid out a whole framework for the post-war international economy. Not, it was not meant to be run by the United States, but it was absolutely based on American ideas, American and British ideas. Roosevelt's economists worked closely with British bankers and bureaucrats. Here we see Roosevelt's Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, talking to the famous British economist, John Maynard Keynes. But Bretton Woods really did represent a passing of the torch, that the United States was eclipsing Britain, New York was eclipsing London as the center of the world economy, the center of international finance. The US dollar became the basis of world trade after Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods also created the International Monetary Fund, which loans money to bankrupt countries to keep them solvent, and the World Bank, which loans money to developing countries to reduce poverty and promote economic development. Now, these bodies have become quite controversial over the years. Those loans that they give out very much come with strings attached. These are powerful, influential bodies that really shape the economy of participating nations in the model of the United States. American policymakers were very aware of the economic devastation caused by the war. Cities pounded to rubble, thousands, tens of thousands of refugees, people starving all across Europe and in Asia. And of course, they feared that economic collapse would lead to political collapse, maybe even communist revolution in places like Germany, Italy, France, even Britain. In 1947, uh, the Secretary of State, George Marshall, announced billions of dollars in aid to war-torn Europe that became known as the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan money did not come in the form of loans like after the First World War, but grants. So this money did not need to be paid back. But again, there were strings attached. The U.S. Congress stipulated that European countries that received this aid must spend 70% of that money on American-made goods. 
They also insisted that any government that wanted to accept this aid must get rid of all communist members. So what effect did this have on European nations? Well, it poured a lot of money into Western Europe, but of course it also meant a lot of money coming back to the United States to American business. And it kind of dangled a carrot of aid in front of Eastern Bloc countries, said, you can have this money, you just have to get rid of all the communists. And it drove a wedge between the kind of liberal left and the communist left in the rest of Europe. So places like France and Italy had coalition governments and did oust their communist members in order to accept the aid. By 1952, the United States had poured something like $22 billion in aid to France, West Germany, Italy, Britain, with remarkable success. By 1952, industrial and agricultural production in Western Europe had, had returned to and then exceeded pre-war levels. The U.S. took an even more active role in rebuilding and kind of remaking Japan. With Japan's surrender at the end of the war, the United States military would occupy and effectively rule Japan for about the next five or six years. General Douglas MacArthur, who we last saw uh, gassing and clubbing World War I veterans in the Bonus Army, and then fleeing the Philippines in advance of the largest surrender in U.S. history, became the commander of U.S.-occupied Japan. And he was given wide latitude by Washington to run things as he saw fit. MacArthur made the decision not to depose uh, the Japanese emperor, Hirohito, but every other level of the Japanese government would be remade kind of along American lines. Along with the actual army, MacArthur brought in an army of New Deal lawyers and bureaucrats to redesign the Japanese government. The Americans actually wrote the Japanese constitution. And the Japanese constitution is a really interesting document because it's clearly based on the U.S. constitution, but it's sort of like the U.S. constitution as if rewritten by 1930s era New Dealers. Well, it's not sort of, that is what it is. The U.S. mandated restructuring of Japan reflected uh, the New Deal ethos of business, government, labor, partnership that we saw in the New Deal, in the NRA, and programs like it. There was talk uh, early on of breaking up the zaibatsu, which were the massive family-owned business conglomerates that many Americans saw as collaborators in Japanese aggression. But MacArthur resisted radical economic change. He made the zaibatsu partners in rebuilding Japan and in repressing communist agitation and in doing business with American firms. And of course, Japan would prosper during and after U.S. occupation. By the time the American occupation ended in 1952, Japan had more than regained its pre-war level of income. And by the late 1960s, it would have the world's third largest economy. These images we're looking at are kind of a before and after posters issued by American officials in occupied Japan to illustrate, to teach the Japanese new democratic principles. So I can't read the Japanese, but if we were in class together, I would get you to try and decode what you think these posters are saying. In each case, the top picture is sort of a before representation of how things were or how Americans thought things were in old imperial militarist Japan. And then the bottom picture is how things are going to be now that Japan is being rebuilt on American lines. 
So I don't know exactly what it says, but in the top left, we have people kowtowing to some sort of a Mandarin figure. In the top right, we have a hierarchy of both class and wealth and gender. And then the bottom pictures suggest that everyone is equal. A little truck is driving those blocks away. And the top pictures here show a society where the military is in charge. And also I think on the right, a patriarchal society, a society where men are in charge while the characters on the bottom right suggest that men and women must be equal. There was a young American woman named Beata Sirota who is not much known in the United States, but who became a beloved figure in Japan. Sirota was American, as I say, but she uh, had lived in Japan before the war. She was only like 22 or 23 years old when the war ended, but because she spoke Japanese, she was assigned to MacArthur as a translator, and he put her with the team of American lawyers who were tasked with writing the new Japanese constitution. And when they got to the part of the new constitution about all men are equal under the law, there's this room of military men and New Deal policy men. And Sirota was the only woman in the room, but she said, it should really say women too. And based entirely on that, they wrote equal rights for women into the Japanese constitution. But the story of Japan, where the United States kind of imposed change, imposed its will directly on a conquered foe, was the exception to the rule. For the most part, the United States in 1945 did not force its way on the world because it didn't have to. America's immense economic advantage over the rest of the world gave it a ton of prestige and influence. Some people called this an American empire by invitation, the idea being that the United States invited the world to join its empire. Some people call this hegemony. The difference between hegemony and empire being that an empire forces its subjects to do what it wants, but a hegemon or a hegemony doesn't have to force its subjects because the subjects share the worldview of the leader. They voluntarily submit or consent. Okay, so why do you think I illustrate the concept of hegemony with this particular image? Well, it's because hegemony is like high school. Uh, the popular kids don't need to force other kids to like the music they like or copy the clothes they wear. The other kids do so out of imitation. They consent to the power structure. They consent to be governed. And American power and influence often worked this way. But the other reason I use this photo is that it's from this exact moment. We talked before, we talked in the lecture on the 1920s, how the rest of the world was fascinated by and eager for American consumer culture. But American culture and consumer goods became really ubiquitous, globally ubiquitous after 1945, especially youth culture. And this photograph comes from an issue of Life magazine, Henry Luce's Life magazine, published in 1944. And what adds to its historical significance is that it either coined or at least certainly popularized the term teenage. The term teenager appears at this moment, appears in this issue of Life magazine. It was a marketing term used by advertisers and manufacturers that reflected the new spending power of adolescents and, and their emergence as a distinct market, a distinct market for consumer culture. So the invention of the teenager exactly coincides with America's victory in the Second World War. Here's a great quote from John Lennon, the Beatle John Lennon saying, America had teenagers, everywhere else just had people. Because for people all around the world, 
including John Lennon, growing up working class in post-war Britain, America was the home of popular culture and the most iconic American products were not necessities, but enjoyable luxuries like movies and music and fast food. And as prosperity returned to Europe and to Asia, it very often returned in an American form. The arrival of American cars, American music, American clothes signaled the return of disposable income. And there's no better symbol of this than Coca-Cola. I like how the girls in this Coca-Cola ad from 1945 could actually be the girls in this Life magazine photo from 1944. And then you got this kid drinking Coca-Cola in bed. Oh, I feel my teeth decaying just looking at this. So I want to talk a bit about Coca-Cola and the role it played as a symbol of America's new world order in 1945. The drink Coca-Cola was invented back in the 1880s. It was one of dozens of what they called patent medicines at this time. These were allegedly healthy concoctions that involved various combinations of sugar, alcohol, and very often stimulants like caffeine and yes, cocaine. As I say, there were dozens of these in the late 19th century, but Coca-Cola is one of the ones that stuck around. And by the 1920s, Coca-Cola had emerged as an iconic American drink. In the 1930s, Coke's president, Robert Woodruff, uh, was starting to break into overseas markets to, to bring Coca-Cola to the world, but with limited success. Coca-Cola was expensive overseas, and Europeans, at least, didn't seem to like it all that much. The Second World War was the break that Woodruff and Coca-Cola needed. And Woodruff promised, he made a pledge, that every U.S. soldier would be able to get a Coke for five cents, no matter where in the world he was. He said it didn't matter if Coca-Cola lost money on this. He called this morale food. And the Coca-Cola company made good on this promise. And in the bargain, it got preferential treatment from the U.S. military and the U.S. government. So for instance, it got to go to the head of the line in sugar rationing. And as American troops moved into Europe, Coca-Cola came with them. They set up bottling plants in Casablanca after the North African invasion, in Naples during the Italian campaign, in France after D-Day, and in the Philippines and China during the war with Japan. I've talked a couple of times about the Soviet General Zhukov toasting General Eisenhower at the end of the war. I don't know what they're drinking in this picture, but Zhukov was actually a big fan of Coca-Cola, but he thought it might not look good for a Soviet general to be drinking this iconic capitalist American drink. So Eisenhower actually arranged for Coca-Cola to send Zhukov a case of white Coke, basically Coke with the coloring taken out. So Zhukov could drink Coca-Cola kind of discreetly to his heart's content and not, I guess, worry about being sent to the gulag for counter-revolutionary tendencies. After the war, Coke was kind of like the official drink of the Marshall Plan, and Coca-Cola worked hand-in-hand -hand with the U.S. government and the U.S. military to navigate government regulations, different legal regimes, and basically put plants everywhere the U.S. had a military presence. I don't know if you can read the text of these ads, but the one on the left is about Coca-Cola in China. The one on the right is about Coke returning to the Philippines when the United States returned to take the Philippines back from Japan. 
the ad says, Coca-Cola, around the world, Coca-Cola is a symbol of goodwill, an everyday example of how Yankee friendliness follows the flag around the globe. I also like that both ads take the time to explain that Coke is a short form for Coca-Cola, just so you know. By the early 1950s, Coke was a global force. It had 412 plants in 92 countries, and it advertised relentlessly, working the same themes as its domestic advertising. Coke represents leisure, represents fun, represents youth, and it represents America. And here's Luce's Time magazine once again celebrating Coke's global dominance. The last thing I want to talk about today, the, another way in which America was remaking the world in 1945 was in a way not necessarily intended by U.S. policymakers. And that is the process of decolonization, the crumbling of the old colonial empires. And I talked a few weeks ago when we were talking about the First World War about the Wilsonian moment of 1919, when Woodrow Wilson raised hopes about self-determination and the end of European imperialism among colonized peoples all over the world. And Wilson raised these hopes, but in a lot of ways failed to live up to the logic of his own words. Many of the hopes that were postponed after 1919 would be realized after 1945. In 1945, at the end of the Second World War, over a third of the world's people still lived in dependent territories. But the colonized peoples who were denied independence after 1919 were much more insistent after 1945. And the Second World War really triggered the collapse of empire. It weakened the European powers, but it just delegitimized them also. The language of the war, the Allies talked about self-determination, the Tehran and Yalta agreements talked about self-determination, the new United Nations embraced a vision of universal human rights, and this stirred the hopes and determination of colonized peoples all over the world. Once again, the United States played an ambivalent role in the wave of decolonization movements. It seemed to support it with its language, but it also had certain doubts as to whether third world peoples were ready to chart their own course. But after 1945, decolonization was going to happen with or without American blessing. Here's a long list of former colonies that got independence after 1945. In India, Gandhi had been leading his nonviolent movement for independence since 1919, but it was with the coming of the Second World War that the British could no longer support the Raj, and in 1947, Britain finally decamped, decamped from India and Pakistan. In the same year, 1947, the African leader Kwame Nkrumah returned from America to his native Ghana, which was then the British Gold Coast. Nkrumah had been educated in the United States. He went to university in Philadelphia and in Harlem. He was influenced by the black intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois and by ideals of what was called Pan-Africanism, a kind of a movement for the worldwide solidarity of African peoples. And Nkrumah's movement achieved independence for Ghana in 1957. And this was part of a wave of other African nations, something like 17 African countries got their independence in 1960 alone. In China, the Chinese nationalists, the Kuomintang and the Chinese communists had fought together against the Japanese, which had invaded right before the war. But after the Japanese were defeated, China fell into civil war between the Kuomintang and the communists. The United States supported the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, but the communists had the support of the peasants. 
And by 1949, the communist leader Mao Zedong, who was yet another non-Western leader who had been radicalized by the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. By 1949, Mao defeated Chiang Kai-shek and established the new People's Republic of China. Vietnam declared its independence from France in 1945. And we talked before about how Ho Chi Minh had actually been at Versailles in 1919. And you could see the American influence. The Vietnamese Declaration of Independence quotes the American Declaration of Independence word for word and insists that it applies to all the peoples on the earth. So even though Ho Chi Minh would go on to be one of America's greatest foes, we see here the power and the influence of American ideas, American language. Now, American policymakers watched all of these independent movements with concern and sometimes with alarm, especially in cases like Vietnam or China, where the independence movements were led by communists. But if we look back to Henry Luce in 1941, describing the American century and saying that it must be a sharing with all peoples of our Bill of Rights, of our Declaration of Independence, isn't that exactly what was happening? People around the world were taking hold of these ideas, of these words, appropriating them, whether Americans liked it or not. And that too was a measure of American power and influence and why 1945 seemed to herald the dawn of an American century. Thanks very much for watching. We look forward to hearing about what you think in tutorial and on Teams. Out on Manzanella Beach, GI romance with native peach. All night long make tropic love, the next day sit in hot sun and cool off, drinking rum and Coca-Cola. Go down point Kubala, both mother and daughter, working for the Yaki Dala. It's a fact, ma, it's a fact, rum and Coca-Cola. Working for the Yankee Dollar.